Okay, we're going to try to wrap it up tonight, see how it goes. In our study on the cults, we have covered thus far how to recognize deceptive teaching and false teachers. We have covered how to share our faith with someone who's been kind of sucked into that deception. And then we have covered where most modern-day cults originate from. But the last few weeks, we've been educating ourselves on the cults that we are likely to come into contact with in our community here in Central Florida. We examined the claims of Mormonism and found them to be wanting when compared with the Bible. We examined the claims last week of the Watchtower Society and, again, found them to be wanting when compared with the Bible. And so, in hopefully our final week on this topic, we're going to look at two smaller but very active cults in our area, and that is the Black Hebrew Israelites and the World Society Mission Church of God. I have in particular spoken to many of individuals who attend church here who have said they've encountered either one of these groups. And so I really sense the Lord leading me to, to share with you guys so you can know it's trouble. It's something to, to not get involved in. Now, again, this is another important reminder. I've been doing this the last couple of weeks, but our examination of these two cults is not for the purpose of helping you evangelize with them. If you want to know how to evangelize someone who's in one of these cults, the book of Jude teaches us how to share the gospel with someone who's involved in false teaching. And so I'd encourage you to go listen to that study from a few weeks ago if you'd like to learn how to share the gospel with someone who's caught in false teaching. Because if you and I take what we learned tonight and we use it as a weapon to win a conversation with someone who is in one of these two cult groups, uh, we're going to miss the point and we're going to fail to reach them with the good news of Jesus Christ. Our goal this evening is educating ourselves, the purpose is for spiritual preventative maintenance. We want to make sure that we don't ever get deceived by either of these two groups. Now, This is normally the time I would kind of flash up and show you some recommended resources for further studies. The problem with these two groups is both of them didn't begin to grow until the 1980s, so there's not a whole lot of literature out there on them that I could recommend. I'm sure there's some good literature out there, but none I've read. Most of my research that I did on these cults came from their own websites and then just comparing it with the Bible. So that's what we're going to look at tonight, okay? So let's look at the first group, the Black Hebrew Israelites. Their history, there is no primary leader of the Hebrew Israelite movement, and they don't have a central headquarters. That means that the beliefs and the practices of Hebrew Israelites vary considerably. The movement consists of groups of people, they call themselves camps. And so these camps are mostly of black African ancestry, but you will find some other people of color in these groups. The camp started to form in the United States around the Civil War. Interestingly enough, that's just right after the Restoration Movement, like every other cult, and they started to spring up around that time. Early leaders all claimed to have revelations from God, where God told them that African Americans are descendants of the Hebrews in the Bible. Not people of color all over the world, but specifically African Americans are descendants of the Hebrews in the Bible. They taught that when the Romans expelled the Jews from Jerusalem in 70 AD, that they migrated for more than a thousand years to the West before reaching West Africa, and then later ended up in the United States as slaves. They believe that the cruel chapters of black history in the West, which are cruel, that that was God's curse on Israel's sin. They also believe that their suffering was God's mark on them so that the world would always know his people were. Because they would say, well, you've been marked with God's curse. This is our proof that we are the original Israelites. So they believe now that they've rediscovered this truth that God's plan is to lead them back to their homeland in Israel. 
Now, the first camp to move back to, in their minds, back, but the first camp to move to Israel was led by a man named Ben-Ami. He he has died in the last decade, but formerly he was a foundry worker in Chicago named Ben Carter. Ben-Ami, he claimed that the angel Gabriel appeared to him in 1966 and told him that many African Americans were descendants of the lost Israeli tribe of Judah. Carter's epiphany led him to gather 30 followers in 1967, and they moved to Liberia for what he called a two-year cleansing period on the way to the Promised Land. When they finally got their visas and they traveled to Israel, Israel authority, Israeli authorities initially denied them entry, but then they directed them to temporarily settle down in a remote desert town called Dimona. They never left, but they were also never granted full citizenship in Israel. They currently have a community in Israel today that numbers about 2,000 people. They've grown very quickly because the community is polygamous. Ben-Ami had four wives. He is revered by them as a messianic figure. Uh, We'll get into their views on the Messiah a little bit later. His picture can be found pretty much in every apartment in the community. He believed Jesus was just one of an ongoing line of messiahs sent by God to keep the people of Israel in the ways of righteousness. He claimed to be the current Messiah before he died. He said this when someone interviewed him. He said, the Father, God, sent a prophet to anoint me and to let me know, that, uh, let me know the further off or great portion of my mission. At the time he anointed me, this prophet, he said, I received the name Nasi HaShalom, which means the Prince of Peace. Later on, this same prophet came again to tell me, according to the word of God, that at a later date, someone would be sent to anoint me to sit on the throne of David in the spirit and to fulfill the prophecies of he that was to sit on the throne of David. So those are his own words. He claims to be the Messiah in that day. Now, while all camps do not agree on whether ben Emmy is the Messiah, The primary doctrine of every camp has this in common, is that they believe that modern American minorities, both black and brown, are the true descendants of the ancient Israelites. Now, I know I said they're black Hebrew Israelites. Most members only refer to themselves as Hebrew Israelites because the movement also includes Latino members, although, and Native American members, although Latino and Native American members have a lesser standing because they're Skin tone, because it's not as dark, shows that they've polluted their bloodline in some way. So they don't have the same standing as those who have very dark skin. Now, the largest camp in our area is this one right here. It is the IUIC, Israel United in Christ. Their Facebook page states, our history is in the Bible. Learn your nationality. Learn that you're an Israeli person. You are not Jewish. They won't use that word. They say that's a word for the false Israelis. They say, learn your nationality, what's required of you, and how to receive salvation when Christ returns and where we are in Bible prophecy. While that sounds very inviting, if you want to attend their Sabbath services, you have to call first. They will not let you inside unless you call them to ensure that you are truly an Israelite and otherwise they don't let you in. So if you're just a curious onlooker and you want to learn more about it, if you are not of black or brown skin color, number one, they don't let you in, but they also want to know if you're an actual, truly are descended from the slaves in America, otherwise you're not a Hebrew Israelite. So you can't just show up and visit. So So that's the group in a nutshell. What do they teach? Well, first off, we'll look at what they teach about God. 
They teach that the Trinity is a false teaching. They don't believe in a triune God. They only believe in, in God the Father in a sense, that as we might look at it. They also believe that God's true name is Yah. They will not refer to Him by any other name. And they use Psalm 68 verse 4 to prove that. In Psalm 68 verse 4, it does call God this name. It says in Psalm 68 4, Sing unto God, sing praises to His name, extol Him that rides upon the heavens by His name, Jah, and rejoice before Him. So they say, that's His name. It's His only name. If you call Him by any other name, you're not worshiping the right God. Well, what does the Bible teach in regard to these two concepts? Well, the Bible teaches that God is indeed a compound unity, that He is a tri-unity. We've covered this when we studied Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses, but Deuteronomy 6.4 says here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And that word echad is a compound unity. If I have a handful here of manila envelopes, okay, but if all of a sudden I bundled them up and I handed all of them to you, I wouldn't say, here's a bunch of handfuls of manila envelopes. I would say, here's a handful of manila envelopes. I would use singular and plural. That's what the word, uh, the word for echad is. It's a bundle of something. So it's one thing, but with multiple pieces inside of it. And that's what God is. The Bible teaches us that it is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, but there's only one God. One God, three persons. In addition to this, Psalm 68, 4, while it does call God Yah there, or Jah, if you have uh, King James or New King James, it does not teach that God's only name is that. In fact, it doesn't tell us that we need to know that name in order to be saved. There are numerous names for God in the Old Testament. You have Jehovah. You have Jehovah with lots of additions to it. You have Elohim is sometimes used for God. There's multiple names. El is used for God. There are multiple names that are used for God in the Old Testament, and never does it tell us that one of those names is the name that we have to call Him, otherwise we're not saved. So they don't get God right. What do they teach about Jesus? Well, as I mentioned earlier, if there's no Trinity, then Jesus can't be God. They do not believe that Jesus is God. They believe that He is merely a noteworthy prophet, according as stated in Matthew 21, 11. In Matthew 21, 11, when Jesus came into Jerusalem during the triumphant entry, it says in Matthew 21, 11, and the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. And so they camp on that verse and say, He's just a prophet. I'll get to that in a second. Now, depending upon which camp you're a part of, Jesus might or not be a Messiah. Belief in the Messiah is not a central component of what defines black Hebrew Israelites. Belief in the cross is not a central component at all. It doesn't have anything to do with their faith. I'll quote to you from HebrewIsraelites.org. Oh, I had some pictures. That's from their, one, their last teaching was on the Deuteronomy Project. I'll explain that later from the Facebook page in Orlando, and this is a little bit more racist here. It does not paint anyone with light skin in a positive light, but this is the quote that I want to read to you from the HebrewIsraelites.org. And I apologize if some of the English sounds a little broken. I wanted to give you a direct quote. That's not me misspelling things, so, and that's not to critique them. I'm just trying to be honest. It says, some of Israel do believe in the Messiah, and some don't. Even among the one who don't, there exists a slight separation of what they believe about the Messiah. 
This can also be found among the one who do believe. There isn't one universal belief about the Messiah among Hebrew Israelites. And then he comments, well, not yet. So this is their idea on Jesus. Jesus is special only in the sense that some might believe he is a Messiah, and then all believe, though, that he was a noteworthy prophet. So no different than Moses or Elijah or anybody else. So what does the Bible say? Well, John 1, 1 and 2, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. The Bible teaches that Jesus is Almighty God from all eternity. He is not a noteworthy prophet. That is a bad text to use because it is a text that, uh, because that verse describes what other people who weren't necessarily believers said about Jesus. So, I mean, that is not a good idea to use. Like, I could tell you and prove to you that the Bible says that there is no God. The Bible does say there is no God. Right before it, it says, the fool has said in his heart. (laughs) So, you have to know the context. You can't just rip a verse out of its context and use it and say, well, hey, he's just a noteworthy prophet. When you get into Matthew 21, verse 10, It says, and when he was coming to Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, who is this? And the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Well, who's the multitude here? Well, we know that in the multitude are the same Pharisees who said, tell your disciples to be quiet. We know that in the multitude are many of the people who later on said, crucify him. We know that in the multitude were some people who were actually shouting this, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That phrase, Hosanna, means save now God. (laughs) Save us, God. There were a group there that believed that he was the Messiah and the son of David and that he was God. So, you could take any of those opinions. None of them are definitive there. The Scriptures in other places definitively teach, like John 1, that he is Almighty God from all eternity. The Bible also teaches that Jesus is the Messiah and he always claimed to be so. In Acts 2.36, Peter, when he's preaching on the day of Pentecost, the very first sermon he gives after Jesus has risen from the dead, he says, therefore, let the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. That is the teaching of the Scripture. He is Christ. That means, that is the Greek word for anointed one, which is the Old Testament word Messiah. He is the anointed one of God, the Messiah of God. In Mark 14, verses 61 and 62, when Jesus stood trial before the Sanhedrin, they asked him point blank, tell us if you're the Christ, are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. It's not that complicated. (laughs) I am, he said, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. That's not happening for Moses or anybody else. That's the Son of God, the promised Messiah, fulfilling everything that God said the Messiah would do. So they get Jesus wrong. What do they believe about salvation? Well, Hebrew Israelites, they claim that there are three requirements to be saved. Number one, you must call on the true name of Jesus in Hebrew, which is Yeshua ben Yah. Number two, you must keep the Sabbath and observe various Jewish laws. And number three, you must have black or brown skin and recognize your true heritage as an Israelite. If you do not have that color skin, you cannot be saved. You can't. There's no way to change it. You cannot be saved. 
HebrewIsraelites.org makes this very clear on the first point about Jesus' name. You have to call upon him by his Yah-given Hebrew name, as it states in Acts 4.12. Acts 4.12, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. They say no other name could be a substitute, no translation of his name. Only his true name given from heaven can be spoken in every language is your key to salvation. So that's the first requirement. Now, where do they get this idea that those with dark skin are the true Israelites in America? Well, generally, the Hebrew Israelites teach that black-skinned people in the West are the true Israelites descended from the tribe of Judah, and they claim that Deuteronomy 28 is a prophecy that reveals the identity of the true Israelites. Well, what is Deuteronomy 28? Well, turn to Deuteronomy 28 with me. You say, why are you bringing up a crazy group like this, Pastor Will? Because they hit our H4O team down at Lake Eola quite frequently. They're down there evangelizing pretty much all the time. So... They're quite aggressive in our area. I had someone else who came to me just two weeks ago and said that they had gotten invited to their Bible studies. I had someone else about two months ago who had mentioned that they encountered them in the store. They'd approached them because they had brown skin. And so they came up to them and said, hey, your true identity, you need to come to our group. So they're very aggressive in our area and uh, you need to know these things. Deuteronomy 28 This is right after there were the blessings and the curses were proclaimed upon Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Remember God told them, he said, you know, have half the tribes go and proclaim the blessings if they'll be obedient to the Lord, and then the other half proclaim the curses if they're disobedient. When you get later in the chapter of of chapter 28, you get to the curses. It talks about the blessings in verses 1 through 14, but then you get to verse 15, it begins talking about the curses. So in particular, they start looking at like verse 68. Verse 68 mentions here, it says, the Lord shall bring you into Egypt again with ships. And they talk about, well, the slave trade was the ship trade. In the West, the slave trade came, many of the uh, Africans who were enslaved came over on ships. They talk about verse 48 here where it mentions, therefore you shall serve your enemies which, uh, which the Lord shall send against you. And they shall put a yoke of iron upon your neck until he have destroyed you. So they say it refers to their bondage. In verse 37, it refers to mockery. You shall become an astonishment, a proverb, and a byword among all nations where the Lord shall lead you. And unfortunately, it is true in history that very often those with black or brown skin have been thought to be less intelligent or some flawed in some way, shape, or form. In verse 25, it mentions being defeated before one's enemies, the idea of being colonized by oftentimes white-skinned countries and nations. So they believe that all these things are a prophecy and a mark upon them that show that we are true Israelites. All these things have happened to us. In addition to this, they claim that Lamentations 5, 10 describes the Israelites with skin as black as an oven. If you read Lamentations 5, 10, a little short book at the end right after Jeremiah, it's also a song. I need to remember that, which means it's going to have some very poetic language. But he explains, he says, our skin was black like an oven, and he tells why, because of the terrible famine. And the idea here is that something happened that caused their their skin to become, you know, just... uh, not black because black skin is weak, but the idea is darkened, that it didn't have life in it. But they look at it differently. The Israelite Heritage website, which is a massive piece of work, you will find literally page upon page upon page of information that they say proves that they are the true Israelites. They claim they are restoring the forgotten heritage to the forgotten people. That 
website has tons of information linking black skin to the Israelites. It spends, in fact, an entire page claiming that Genesis 50.11 proves that Jacob's descendants had black skin because they, they say, well, the Egyptians, ancient Egyptians we know had black skin, and the Canaanites identified the group as Egyptians, even though it was a mix of Egyptians and Joseph's family. If you read Genesis 51, 50 verse 11, it says the Canaanites said, wow, the Egyptians, look at the great mourning they have. And yet we know that Joseph and his family was part of that group. They say, well, they didn't say the Egyptians in this other small group. So they say, well, they all looked the same because they called them all Egyptians. In addition to that, their website claims that the only way Israel could grow from 70 people to 2 million people in 400 years was if they intermarried with the Egyptians. And so the idea is if they didn't have black skin before they went to Egypt, all Israelites did now. And then they use, they say, we know this is true, this happened, because in Acts 21, 37, 38, where Paul, an Israelite, remember he's being led up in, under arrest, and Paul says, hey, can I talk to these guys? And he goes, you speak Hebrew? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, I thought you were that Egyptian that was causing insurrection. And they say, see, he must have had black skin because they called him an Egyptian. So anyway, uh, suffice the fact that by that time, the Egyptians had changed if they did have darker skin in the ancient past. By then, they had changed greatly because the Romans were in charge, and it had been interspersed with lots of European skin tones by that time. This is from the IUIC website. So this is the Orlando camp. People will always argue, according to John 3.16, that repentance is for everyone who loves Christ, but it is not. The Bible clarifies that from Genesis to Revelations, there is only one nation that is able to repent. That nation is the Israelites, the so-called American blacks, Native Americans, and Hispanics. We, as repenting Israelites, will receive the blessings that are to come upon the earth once Christ returns. With this basic understanding that we are the biblical Israelites, we must endeavor to keep the laws of God in the faith of Christ. That is the beginning phase of repentance. So, that's our group that's right here. If you don't have this type of color skin, you can't be saved, you can't repent because you're not a true Israelite. There are so many groups all over the, the United States. This group is huge. Probably the most uh, famous current leader is a man named Rabbi Capers Funyeh. And if you recognize the name, it's because he's Michelle Obama's cousin. He has been called the titular head of the worldwide community of black Jews. He speaks frequently at synagogues, claiming to be Jewish, even though he has no bloodline that ties to it. This is a group that is gaining an influence. Now, using Jesus' correct name, keeping the law, and recognizing their true heritage is the only thing that they believe can keep them out of hell. And yet, to Hebrew Israelites, hell is not a place. Hell is a metaphor and not a literal place where people suffer. Hebrew Israelites, they say they are currently living in what they call the Edomite heaven, which is hell for them. All white-skinned people in the West are Edomites, the enemies and persecutors of Israel in the Bible. So this current heaven for the Edomites is called, according to them, the time of the Gentiles. When the final Messiah comes, he will free them from their Edomite subjugators and regather them into the promised land. Now, as you can imagine, this would lead to a lot of a lot of rhetoric that has to do with not necessarily violence, but definitely war. 
That picture that you saw of the Deuteronomy 28 project, their most recent study, it's a picture of a guy in armor. They wear armor. The teachers wear armor. They wear capes. They wear the whole getup because they consider themselves to be rabbis. They all take Hebrew names. They change their names, and they speak sometimes very viciously in regards to what needs to happen. So, not all of them, some, they believe the final Messiah will enslave all Edomites. And so the future slavery will be the Edomites' eternal punishment for their wrongs to the true Israelites. So what does the Bible teach about these things? Well, the Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, therefore, if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. In other words, and that, by the way, that's a quote from Joel 2.32. So we have an Old Testament passage that says how you get saved and a New Testament passage that says how you get saved. Neither uses the name Yehoshua ben Yah. Neither. Lord in Hebrew is Adonai. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's Adonai. And then in the New Testament, in the Greek, it's Kurios. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Kurios shall be saved. So neither name is used in that passage and it tells us how to get saved. In addition to that, that verse in Acts 4.12, there's no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved. The name Jesus doesn't say Yahshua ben Yah. Jesus' name in Greek is Jesus, not Yehoshua. That's the word that was written by the person who was inspired by God, Luke, a Greek-speaking man, to write the book of Acts. He didn't write Yeshua ben Yah. He wrote Jesus. Nowhere in the entire New Testament do we see the early apostles teaching that you have to call upon the Hebrew name of Jesus to be saved. In fact, many of the early Christians that Paul wrote to were Greek-speaking peoples who didn't know anything about Hebrew. We are saved by believing in our heart, not through a perfect pronunciation of a Hebrew name. Secondly, we are not saved by keeping the Sabbath and all the other laws. The law was not intended to make us righteous. It was meant to show us our need for a Savior and to send us running to the cross. In Romans chapter 3, verse 20, it says that the whole purpose of the law is to shut men's mouths from saying they're righteous. It says, now we know that whatsoever things the law says, it says to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for through the law is the knowledge of sin. The law doesn't save us, it shows us our need for a Savior. And then lastly, what does the Bible teach about skin color? Well, there is some evidence that the ancient Egyptians had very dark skin. And it is true that Joseph's wife was an Egyptian, which means his children could have had very dark skin. Moses married a dark-skinned woman as well. There's nothing wrong with thinking that, well, maybe some Israelites had dark skin and some didn't. But God's plan of redemption was never limited to Israelites, no matter what their skin color was. And we can find that truth in both the Old and the New Testaments. In Isaiah 45, 22, it's awesome. It says here, in Isaiah 45, 22, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. You can with confidence go and tell anyone who is out there that God loves them and Jesus died for them. And if they look to him to be saved, they can be saved. 
The New Testament confirms it. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. Now, will all men be saved? No, but all can. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, it says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. There are no limitations based on anyone's skin color. In addition to that, Jesus sent his disciples to the ends of the earth. In Acts 1.8, he said, you know, wait till you receive the promise of the Father. But after that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You're going to be my witnesses where? Judea. That's an Israeli place. Or Jerusalem. That's an Israeli place. Judea. That's an Israeli place. Samaria. Eh. But then we get the last one, to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's definitely not Israel. Jesus sent them to make disciples of all nations, not just Israelites. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. That's what Jesus said. When we read in the book of Revelation, the church is there worshiping. It says there are people from every tribe and every tongue and every language. What about Deuteronomy 28? Well, there's a couple of interesting things that they like to leave out. Deuteronomy 28, 64, it says this, And the Lord shall scatter you among all people, from the one end of the earth even unto the other. And there you shall serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, even wood and stone. It doesn't say that Israel will be driven west. It doesn't say Israel will be driven to the United States. It says they'd be driven literally among all people to the ends of the earth. Not just America. And verse 68, which they use because it references ships, and obviously the ship slave trade is part of that cruel, dark history to, to, to many people who trace their heritage from, from Africa here in the United States. The wickedness that occurred there, yes. But it's interesting because that's not what 68 says. It doesn't say, and the Lord shall bring it into America or some other place. It's very specific where they're going to go with ships. And the Lord shall bring you into Egypt again with ships. Egypt, by the way whereof I spoke unto you, you shall see it no more again, and there you shall be sold unto your enemies for bondmen and bondwomen, but no man shall buy you. If this is talking about the slave trade, it can't because it says they're going to try to sell you, but no one will buy you. That's certainly not what happened in the United States. This cannot be a prophecy of black slavery in the West. And lastly, hell is not a geopolitical or societal situation for an oppressed group of people. The Bible teaches that hell is a very real place where the wicked will dwell eternally in torment. It talks about in Revelation 19.20 where the false prophet and the beast are snatched, the Antichrist are snatched, and they are cast into the lake of fire which burns forever. And then you get to the end of Revelation 20, and it says that the final great white throne judgment, that everyone whose name was not written in the Lamb's book of life, is cast into the lake of fire where the false prophet and the Antichrist still are. Black Hebrew Israelites may be looking for meaning behind the horrible suffering people of color has been through. I understand that. I understand when you're going through something that's hard that you think to yourself, what does it mean? Why did it happen? But the answer is not to be found in biblical prophecy about the nation of Israel. But even if that were true, even if that's who they were, Israel's purpose was to be a light to the nations. 
not pronounced, the nations would get what was coming to them, and there was nothing they could do to get right with God. These camps are not Israel, and they are not to be listened to. They are false prophets. Now, the second group we're going to look at tonight is the World Society Mission Church of God. And now, the World Mission Society Mission Church of God, I, I interpose words all the time, so forgive me for that. But this is from their Orlando website. The Orlando Church website states, the World Mission Society Church of God is a Christian non-denominational church founded in 1964 in South Korea. Christ Ong Sung Hong founded the Church of God to restore the teachings of the early church, which had been lost throughout history. Since its establishment, the Church of God has grown to have more than 2.7 million registered members in 7,000 locations in 175 countries. In Florida, the Church of God is located in Tampa, Orlando, and Lake Worth. So we are a city that they have targeted, and they have a, a, a pretty decent-sized church here. So obviously, they may have been creeped out a little bit by who in the world is Christ on Song Hong? Well, that's Christ on Song Hong. That's not Christ on Song Hong. That's a man named Ong Song Hong. Ong Song Hong was born in 1918 to Buddhist parents who, pre- who moved to South Korea when he was young. He initially followed their faith, practicing Buddhism until 1945. But in 1946, he began attending a Seventh-day Adventist church. Now remember, that goes back again to the Restoration Movement. That's where the Adventist movement broke out of. They had very close ties with the Restoration Movement. So he got involved with the Seventh-day Adventist church in 1946. He was baptized in 1954 by a Seventh-day Adventist priest, but he didn't remain in the movement long after that. One year before his baptism, uh, Song claimed he received many new revelations from God, and he began to call for the restoration of the truth of the New Testament and what he called the last religious reformation. He became critical of certain Seventh-day Adventist teachings and practices, especially the use of the cross as a religious symbol. In 1962, he was excommunicated from the Seventh-day Adventist church because he claimed that the truth of the early church would be restored through him, and that the second coming of Jesus would occur within 10 years. Now again, setting dates for the return of Christ is an Adventist idea, but by this time they had seen how wrong they were, and they had told people to stop doing it in the Seventh-day Adventist church. You won't hear them do that anymore. But this guy, he did. That was also a part of the restoration movement ideology of setting dates for Christ's return. So it all goes back to the same thing. Maybe South Korea, but it originated here. Now, when he was excommunicated, 23 people left the Adventist church with him, and two years later, in 1964, he officially established the Church of God Jesus Witnesses. He described their doctrine in his book titled, Manual Doctrine of Witnesses of Jesus' Church of God. Number one, women should wear head coverings while praying. Number two, baptism is the final step toward salvation. That's another restoration theology concept. Number three, Christmas, Thanksgiving, and wearing the cross should not be observed because they are not biblical doctrines. Instead, number four, Christians must observe the Sabbath and the seven Jewish festivals. This is what he said in his sermon, Walk with God. He said, Jesus keeps the Sabbath, so I keep the Sabbath. Jesus keeps the Passover, so I also keep the Passover. Jesus keeps the Feast of Tabernacles, so I also keep the Shed Festival. He also taught that Jesus must come back from the Far East, in particular, South Korea. Do you see a trend? 
Like in every cult, it's like God has to do something right where I'm at. Now, he originally taught that Jesus had to return by 1967, but later on he altered this to saying that the last church would be ended up within 40 years of 1967. In his 1980 book entitled The Mystery of God and the Eye of Life, he taught that the world would end in 1988. In his book, this is a very long title, so forgive me, in his book, which he wrote later that year, it's called The Bridegroom is Long to Arrive and They All Become Drowsy and Asleep. In that book, he taught, I know it is a little comical, it's just like, really? Like, no one could help this guy with a better title? Like, if somebody comes to me and says, you need to read this book, I'm going to be like, I'm out. Like, Jesus isn't weird. Like, you got Leviticus. You got Ephesians, right? I I don't need this nonsense. In that book, which he wrote later that year, after he predicted the world would end by 1988, he taught that the process of the end of the world might be slow. And so it probably won't be complete until 2012. Well, 13 other churches spawned from his original church that broke off from the Seventh-day Adventist church. But the group really didn't begin growing beyond South Korea until after his death in 1985. When he died, the church split into two rival factions over his teaching about a mother God. There she is right there. She's still alive today. This is who they worship. In 1978, a group of female members uh, claimed that one of their group, a woman named Um Su-in, not her, that she was mother God heavenly Jerusalem, and the comforter sent down from heaven. Sun Hong, who's still alive at that time, he wrote a book in 1980 titled Problems with the New Jerusalem, the Bride and Women's Veils, where he not only denounced the idea of a mother God, but in chapter 7 claimed that that whole false idea was the result of this um su ins misguided delusion. But when An Song Hong died unexpectedly from a stroke in 1985, his church was divided on the issue. One group, led by his son, rejected the idea of a mother god. He only believed that his father was the prophet Elijah come to prepare the church for the second coming of Christ. But the other group, led by a man named Ji Chiol Kim and a woman named Zhang Gilja, claimed that An Sung Hong was the second coming of Jesus and that she was his wife, God the mother. They claimed that Hong and Zong are the spirit and the bride of Revelation 20:17, where it says the spirit and the bride say come, that God sent them in the last days, that he was God, the father in a sense, she was mother God, and that he sent both of them, which is weird, I know, but go with me, to say come in the last days. They named their group the World Mission Society Church of God, which is what they exist as today. Now, this is quite fascinating. As you see there, she creates a happy world. They don't mean that metaphorically, by the way. Like she created the world with the love of a mother. What is interesting about this claim that she makes is that during his life, Song Ong was married to an entirely different woman named Huang Wansun. They had four children together. They never divorced. They're buried together with both of their names in a shared tombstone. Yet Zhang, who is still alive alive today, claims to be his living widow, even though they hardly knew each other. She is currently referred to as the heavenly Jerusalem, the bride, or Jesus' wife. And so to explain the fact that she can be his wife, even though they were never married, 
the church teaches that the physical does not matter, and therefore An's physical wife isn't important. Members should focus on the spiritual, and they should focus on the heart of mother. That is their church organization in, I want to say that's New York City. This is not some group of like a handful of weirdos, all right? This is a massive group. Over three million people in the world believe that this woman is Mother God and that that man who never claimed to be God, that he is, he is God as well. Now, the person that helped her break away, Jul Chil Kim, he is still alive and he is currently the general pastor of the movement. Under his leadership, the church expanded beyond South Korea and now has over 3 million members worldwide. Sabbath services can last up to 12 hours, which includes, yeah, you think I go long. (laughs) I need to get it working. (laughs) Sabbath services can last up to 12 hours, which includes singing. All their teachings are video teachings directly from this man. You go to church and you watch a video of this man. He teaches from their South Korea headquarters or someone who's filling in for him. And then they also have instruction from members based on his teachings. The World Society Mission Church of God is also very active in volunteer efforts, from hurricane relief to blood drives and community cleanup projects. In fact, the church has received more than 20,000 awards for its service, and it is extremely attractive to those who have a concern for the environment. The Orlando Church website says, oh, that's, uh, that's the LA church, by the way. Massive. That was for their Passover feast celebration. But this is from the Orlando Church website. It says, hundreds of government officials, organizations, and leaders of nations have recognized the Church of God for its continual devotion to serving communities. In 2016, Queen Elizabeth II presented the Church of God with the Queen's Voluntary Service Award, which is the top award in the United Kingdom given to organizations. Through this award, the Church of God also gained the title of MBE, Member of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire a title that is recognized by 52 members of the Commonwealth of Nations, including Canada, Australia, India, and Singapore. I find that last bit interesting because the Singapore government actually has them officially listed as a cult on their website. (laughs) They're a campus outreach wing, which is very aggressive. If you're a young person, and particularly many young people today are very environmentally aware, this is the group they send after you, okay? Their campus outreach wing is known as Save the World from A to Z, and their stated goal, this is what they said to the UN, is to, they actually sent a delegation to the UN. Their stated goal is to deliver the heartwarming love of mother who devotes herself to her children for their life, safety, and happiness, to our neighbors suffering from conflicts and disasters, and to the whole world. The campus outreach wing seeks to recruit members interested in volunteer environmental projects. But to participate in those projects, you need to attend a Bible study session where videos of Jul Chiol Kim are shown and the potential converts are required to answer additional questions based on the teaching. So, what do they believe? What do they believe about God? Well, as I've already mentioned, they believe that there are two gods, God the Father and God the Mother. God the Father to them is one person who has manifested himself in three ways. In the Old Testament times, he manifested himself as Jehovah. In the New Testament times, he manifested himself as Jesus. In these current last days, he manifested himself as An Song Hong, who is now, they claim, the Holy Spirit. He's also dead, which I don't know how that works, but that's what they say. 
Son Hong An's living widow, Zhang Gilja, is God the mother. She's still alive. They, they worship her here on the earth. Now, this is from their website, watv.org. It'll, there's some convoluted ways you got to get to it, and it was like pulling teeth trying to get stuff off their website because they've made it so you can't highlight, copy things, you can't copy photos and everything. They're incredibly protective of their information. But they do have this on their website. So I tap, tap, tapped it all out. Can't stop me. They say, in the Bible, God is referred to through plural forms instead of singular forms. For example, they use the word Elohim, which is a plural word. They say that he is, it is written that God has a male image and a female image, and they, they quote Genesis 1, 26 and 27, where it says this, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over everything, verse 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. So they say, well, if God created a male and a female, then there must be a male and a female God because they were made in his image. They also use, in their minds, logic. There is not a single creature that can come into existence without a mother. That's not true, but I digress. There's not a single creature that can come into existence without a mother. Our physical life is given to us from our physical mother. Our spiritual life is given to us through our spiritual mother. And then lastly, this is important. God the mother is the core of our faith and the figure that guides us. God the mother stands by and prays for us whenever we face hardships. What does the Bible, oops, got ahead of myself, can't sneak a quote. Well, what does the Bible say? Well, the Bible does say that God has some attributes that are mother-like, but it does not say that there are two gods. The Bible also describes God like a hen and a lion, and a lamb. But the World Society Mission Church doesn't say God is any of those animals. It is inconsistent to seek to be very little literal about every motherly attribute ascribed to God in the Bible, but look at all other references to God being like animals as metaphorical. That's inconsistent. In addition to that, it's inconsistent when you say that everything literally there means there's a mother God, but then you refer to Zhang Jia Gil as, or Gil Jia as God's spiritual wife. That's inconsistent. You can't say one thing's literal, but then this is all metaphorical. Verses in the Bible that describe God like a mother are what we call anthropomorphic. Let me tell you a story. I know I'm running out of time. But, well, not a story. Let me just sum up. If you had, oh, I have a bird. Here we go. I have a bird. And our bird, he does some things that get him in trouble. Like he, he will take his, his little, little dish and he'll pick it up and slam it down. Pick it up and slam it down. Pick it up and slam it down. And I'll go over there and I say, his name's Cheeky. I say, Cheeky. I say, if you keep picking that up and slamming it down, they're going to put you outside. You're going to go on the porch. It's air conditioned in here. Everybody's talking to you. You're part of the family in here. But if you keep slamming that thing down, you're going to go get put on the porch. And he'll just look at me. And I'll walk away and he'll start doing it again. And he ends up on the porch. 
And there are numerous times I think, I wish I could just communicate in a way that he could understand me, because I can't. How does the God of the universe communicate to us in ways we can understand? As sometimes he uses pictures. Sometimes he uses examples from life that we understand to say, hey, I'm kind of like this. That's what we say when verses in the Bible that describe God like a mother are anthropomorphic. They are literary tools used to help us understand God better through human language. It's not to say there's an additional God who is a mother. The Bible also teaches that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are different persons. They're not different manifestations of one person. We see them talking to one another. We see them speaking to humanity about each other as distinctive personages. In Isaiah 44, 6, it's one of my favorites because you see this going on. Isaiah 44, 6, it says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. It's like he's talking about another person of the Godhead as another person. That's because he's another person, even though there's only one God. And he tells Israel, I'm not only saying this, but the Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, is saying this. He says, I am the first, I am the last, and beside me there is no God. There you have at least two persons in the Godhead, one God, right here in the Bible. The Bible teaches that God is triune, three persons but one God. We already covered that when we looked at Deuteronomy 6.4. So the doctrine that God is one person who manifests in three different ways, that is heresy. It's a heresy known as modalism. We do not believe in modalism, all right? Some of you maybe have described the Trinity like this to someone and say, well, it's kind of like me. I'm a father and I'm a dad and I'm, I'm a father and I'm a husband and I'm a pastor, but it's all me. That's heresy. We do not believe that about God all right? We don't believe that about God. So, don't do that. <laughs> I know you're trying to explain, but, but that's not biblical, okay? That's modalism. That's something that uh, T.D. Jakes teaches, and, and he is outside the faith. That's not something we should be embracing. So, what they teach about God is false. I got to hurry up here. What do they teach about Jesus? This is from their website. Just as salvation was withheld from those who were stuck on the name of Jehovah and failed to receive Jesus as their Savior in the age of the Son, salvation will never be given to those who are stuck on the name of Jesus in this age. And when I read that, I want to step away because that is, boo. They ask the question, then in the age of the Holy Spirit, of what name, which is the present age to them, of what name should we become the witnesses? What name should we use when we pray? And what name has the authority to give us salvation? The name is An Sung Hong, Jesus' new name. Christ An Sung Hong, and that's who they call him, and they spell it just like that. Christ An Sung Hong is the Savior of this age. Today, salvation is only given through the name of Christ An Sung Hong, and only those who are the witnesses of Christ An Sung Hong and pray in His name will be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. What does the Bible say? Well, the Bible teaches that Jesus is coming back from heaven, not coming back to be reborn as a different human being. The Bible teaches that when Jesus comes back, He has a name no one knows but Himself. Revelation 19, 11, and 12. The Bible teaches that Jesus will never die again and now lives for God. And the Bible teaches that the God he lives for is a distinct person in the Godhead from himself, not a different manifestation of himself. In Romans chapter 6, verses 8 through 10, it says this, 
Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dies no more, death has no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he lives, he lives unto God. Song Hong is dead, and his body is still in the ground. And he also cannot be the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit was already at work in the book of Acts long before he was born. What do they believe about salvation? They say on their website, Christ on Sung Hong came to the earth, established the church of God, and taught us that all men are angels who have come to the earth after sinning in heaven. He let us know how valuable we are, and he revealed to us the true purpose of our lives. They teach that baptism is the first step towards receiving God's favor, just like all the other cults through which we receive the forgiveness of sins. Through baptism, we promise God that we will repent of our past sins as an angel and that we will follow the will of God. In return, God promises that He will remember us in the time of judgment. If we have not been baptized, we cannot keep the Passover. And unless we keep the Passover, our names cannot be written in the book of life. We must be baptized and then keep the Passover so that we can escape the last plagues and enter the eternal kingdom of God. That actually is my typo that time. But what does the Bible teach about salvation? Well, first off, the Bible teaches that God created Adam in the garden and breathed into him so that he became a living soul. Adam was not an angel that sinned and then was sent to the earth as punishment. He didn't exist until the moment God created him in Genesis 2, verse 7. And then what's really cool, you ever wonder why all those genealogies are there? It's for crazy people like this. Every time you read a genealogy, remember what I'm telling you right now. That wasn't nice. I need to get baptized. (laughs) That wasn't nice either. (laughs) I've been waiting way too much in the world of the weird, okay? Like, I'm so excited to start First Kings. The Bible teaches that we are all descendants of Adam. And it goes to great lengths to list Adam's genealogy all the way down to Jesus. No human being is an angel sent to earth as punishment because we sinned in heaven. And of course, the Bible teaches that salvation isn't earned by my own righteousness, whether that's being baptized or keeping Jewish feasts or being loyal to Mother God and her organization. Salvation is a free gift from God received by faith alone. Therefore, by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. When we examine the claims of the World Society Mission Church of God, they are found to be wanting when compared with the Bible. An Song Hong wrote books that taught the end of the world would occur in 1988 and in 2012. In 1988, a few thousand members of his church gathered on a mountain in Yeungai County in South Korea to await his return. When nothing happened, they rescheduled the date to later that year at the opening of the 1988 Olympics in Seoul, Korea. Members gathered outside the arena and preached the end of the world. But again, nothing happened. None of An Sung Han's predictions have happened. Based on Deuteronomy 20, uh, 18, verses 20 through 22, just like Joseph Smith, just like Charles Taze Russell, he is a false prophet. 
We do not need to listen to him. General Pastor Jewel Chil Kim teaches there is more than one God. He speaks in the name of another God. And Deuteronomy 18, verse 20, warns us about this and says that's a sign of a false prophet. It says, but the prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. Now, we don't live in a theocracy. I'm not saying he needs to be killed. That's not what I'm saying. But in Israel, that was a cause for capital punishment because you're a false prophet. He predicted the end of the world also would come in 1999, and after that didn't happen, he changed the date to 2012, and when that didn't happen to 2014, and apparently they're going to release another date very soon. He is a false prophet based on Deuteronomy 18.20. We do not need to listen to him. And then, finally, this church has a history of abuse. Former members report forced marriages, prohibited internet browsing of sites that question their views, and forced tithing. One former group leader for the church, Jordan Young, went on record stating that he was required to look into other members' tithe envelopes to ensure they weren't holding any income back. Paul taught that these secretive and abusive leadership tactics are signs of false prophets. He told the Corinthians, he said, listen, if somebody came to you and they basically, he says they destroyed you, what it means is they took all your money He said, you put up with it. If they slap you in the face, you put up with it. He didn't say that to their praise. We do not need to listen to anyone who's going to treat us like that because that's not how Jesus treats us. We do not need to listen to anyone from this organization or the Hebrew Israelites or the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses. We can engage them with the gospel like Jude teaches us we don't need to listen to these things. If, if you encounter any of these folks and go, I don't know how to answer the question, they sound like they really know the Bible. It's not that they really know the Bible. It's that they really know the stuff they're sharing with you. They've been schooled to say specific things that, like Jude tells us, is going to critique the church you go to. That's their goal. Their, their whole purpose is to tear away what you have so they can now rebuild something false. They are murmurers, complainers. That's what it says false prophets do. So, through breaking you down because you don't know the stuff that they're talking about as well as they do, they may give you the impression, well, you don't really know the Bible. So, what you need to do is remember all this. (laughs) Not all the details, but remember, that's some weird stuff. I may not know how to answer their questions, or I may not understand that particular verse they're talking about, but I know it's not right. And then just go back and study the Scripture. Don't get caught up in a moment with them, and then do not just go to their Bible study, especially if you're confused. Engage them like we talked about when we went through the book of Jude. Share your testimony. Share the assurance of salvation you have. Stick on grace. Stick with the Bible. And if you do that, you'll have the opportunity to minister God's love and God's grace to them. Amen? Let's all stand. Lord, we do want to be faithful to minister grace to anyone that we encounter. I know for me, when I hear the doorbell ring and I look outside the window, (laughs) part of me is just like, don't answer the door. But we don't want to be unloving because the conversations are difficult. So Lord, show us. There may be a time to not answer the door. Maybe we're not ready for that. But Lord, give us a heart, a heart that breaks in the same way yours does, 
for those who are caught up in false teaching. That like Jude talked about, snatching them out of the fire. Lord, give us a heart for those who are involved in this and help us to be in our Bibles so that we know the truths about who you are, who Jesus is, salvation, your word. So Lord, that we got that foundation that keeps us on solid ground even when someone shakes us a little bit. We thank you, Lord, that your word is that. Thank you that you've communicated it to us. Bless everyone here tonight, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.